0: Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at ThriveCosmetics.com Thrive. That's Thrive C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot Thrive for 20% off your first order.
1: Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you
2: won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Let's Get Civical.
1: This is the podcast that breaks down politics, government structure, and dives into the context of current events, but... In a super fun way. I'm Lizzie Stewart, comedian, feminist, and political junkie.
2: And I'm Arden Walantowski, former Senate intern, campaign staffer, and political strategist.
1: In this episode, we're talking about Black soldiers of World War I and World War II.
2: So grab your medal of honor. And let's get civical.
1: Welcome back to Let's Get Civical. I'm Lizzie
2: Stewart, and I'm Arden Walentowski.
1: And today we're simply going to have to jump right in because both Arden and I collectively have <laughs> 140 pages of notes to get through. But in the spirit of the Fourth of July, we are continuing our our two part series of honoring Black soldiers who served in big wars. And as we said last week, today we're tackling WW1 and WW2. Boom boom yeah. boom. So, we hope you had a happy and safe Fourth of July. This is our way of celebrating it, and I can't think of a better way to segue into World War 1. So, let's go. Arden, are Let's you ready do to it? rumble? Let's do it. Okay. So, you guys, I obviously am going to start with an overview of WW1. It's so ironic that I'm having to do this, and we'll find out shortly why. Okay. So, just a quick little, like, what is World War One? How did we <laughs> get in there? So, this is coming from armyhistory.org, uh, Jamie Bryan over there, and history.com all of our friends. So, as you may or may not know, World War I began in 1914 after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and lasted until 1918. So we have 4 years of the war. Hmm. During during the conflict, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire were the central powers and they fought against Great Britain, France, Russia, Italy, Romania, Japan, and the United States, the Allied Powers. So interesting to see that list of Allied Powers in World War I and how it shakes yes. out for World War II. It's very different. Very different, but we're not talking about two yet. The squeakquel has not happened yet. At the outbreak of fighting in 1914, the United States remained on the sidelines of World War I adopting the policy of neutrality favored by enemy of the show, President Woodrow Wilson, which is why this is ironic that I have to tell this story, (laughs) (laughs) while continuing to engage in commerce and shipping with European countries on both sides of the conflict. Little wet blanket Woodrow not being able to have a spine. Neutrality, however, was increasingly difficult to maintain in the face of Germany's unchecked submarine aggression against neutral ships, including those carrying passengers. We gotta hear this unchecked situation. Woodrow's like, it's cool. You know, we're not gonna get, I'm not gonna get mad about it. It's fine. Neutral, Switzerland. Wah, I hate Woodrow Wilson, okay. In 1915, Germany declared the water surrounding the British Isles to be a war zone. Can you just imagine being like... That's so cocky of them. War zone. My bedroom, a war zone. A war zone. (laughs) Just put a flag. War zone. (laughs) And German U-boats sunk several commercial and passenger vessels, including some U.S. ships. Widespread protest over the sinking by U boat of the British ocean liner, the Lusitania, traveling from New York to Liverpool with hundreds of American passengers on board, in May of 1915 helped turn the tide of American public opinion against Germany. So, in February of 1917, Congress passed a $250 million arms appropriations
2: bill intended to make the United States ready for war. We're kind of tardy to the party, if you ask me. Yes, listen, it happened again in World War Two, and we love that. Seems to be a theme. Seems to be a theme.
0: Won't
1: jump in. So that is World War One. That's how. That's like how we become involved. In a nutshell, like this is as basic as I could get. Yep. But it's not about World War One. It's about the black soldiers of World War One. So. A little bit of back history, like, yeah. from the Civil War to World War I. Oh, good. So this is coming from Army History. Everything I just said was USHistory.com, uh, and now this next stuff is from ArmyHistory.org. So following the Civil War, the Army disbanded volunteer, quote, colored regiments and established six regular Army regiments of black troops with white officers. In 1869, the infantry regiments were reorganized into the 24th and 25th Infantry. The two cavalry regiments, the 9th and the 10th, were retained. These regiments were posted in the West and Southwest, where they were heavily engaged in the Indian War. And then during the Spanish-American War, all four regiments saw service. So that's kind of like, that's the setup of what we have going into World War One as far as Black soldiers being involved in the Army. Wow. So when world war oh my god i hate saying world war it's really hard i literally hate it <laughs> <laughs> okay so when ww1 broke out there were four all black regiments the 9th and 10th cavalry and the 24th and 25th infantry like we just said these men and these units were considered heroes in their communities Within one week of Wilson's declaration of war, the War Department had to stop accepting Black volunteers because the quotas for African-Americans were filled. Wow. Don't you love that? They literally... It's so insane to me that we're going into a world war and they're like, actually, no more because we filled a quota. Like, right. we suck. Anyways. It was fairly common for Southern postal workers to deliberately withhold the registration cards of eligible Black men and have them arrested for being draft
2: dodgers.
1: (gasps) I know, honey. Welcome to the South. African-American men who owned their own farms and had families were often drafted before single white employees of large planters. Although comprising of just 10% of the entire United States population, Blacks supplied 13% of inductees. Wow. Although technically eligible for many positions in the Army, very few blacks got the opportunity to serve in combat units. There was such a backlash from the African-American community, however, that the War Department finally created the 92nd and 93rd Divisions, both primarily black combat units, in 1917. And it was documented on July 5th, 1917, that over 700,000 African-Americans had registered for military service. So we have quite a few. With the creation of African-American units also came the demand for African-American officers. The War Department thought the soldiers would be more likely to follow men of their own color, thereby reducing the risk of any sort of uprising. Everybody still, we're in 1917 and still afraid of an uprising. Most leaders of the African-American community agreed, and it was decided that the Army would create a segregated but supposedly equal officer training camp. In May of 1917, Fort Des Moines opened its doors to black officer trainees, and approximately 1,250 men attended the camp in Des Moines, Iowa. And then on October 15th of 1917, 639 African-American men received their commissions as either captain or first or second lieutenant and were assigned to infantry, artillery, and engineer units within the 92nd Division. So World War One, we're finally seeing black men being able to be, like, officers Com- more than yes. just, you know, like yeah. combat officers. Yeah. And so that's, I just wanted to give, that's kind of like an overview, but the the thing was is like when this first started, like, we were pretty much exactly where we were from the Civil War as far nothing as... Nothing had changed. Nothing had changed as far as the structure of black men being in the in the armed, again, in the army pretty much solely.
2: It's crazy. Wow. No progress. Yeah, because 50 years, yeah. 50 years and no 50, progress. 50
1: years and no progress. So two things I want to talk about that aren't about soldiers but are really interesting because this is the first war where you really see these individuals stepping into these roles and it's black nurses and black medical officers Ooh, okay so we'll start first with black nurses um just a quick little nugget from smithsonian magazine specifically alexis clark so thank you alexis So, after the United States declared war on Germany in 1917, Black nurses tried to enroll in the Red Cross, which was then the procurement agency for the Army Nurse Corps. The Red Cross rejected them because they didn't have the required membership in the American Nurses Association, which didn't allow Blacks to join at the time. A few nurses, I know, do you love that?
2: <laughs> it's just, well, it's like the thing when we talked about, like, gay marriage and how the couple in Michigan was like, I want to adopt my child. Right, and it's like... And the state was like, well, you have to be married. And it was like, well, you can't get married, you're gay. Exactly. And it's like, okay, well... <laughs> it's the exact same thing.
1: So a few black nurses eventually served in the First World War, but not because they were finally admitted into the Army Nurse Corps, the 1918 flu epidemic wiped out so many people that a handful of black nurses were called in to assist. So towards wow. the end of the war, we obviously have the, the flu that yeah. killed, you know,
2: which we're now all so, simil- so familiar we, with. Which is literally we know,
1: we know the we know the Spanish <laughs> flu, we know the 1918 flu. We love it. We we love to see it. And so again, it's the same thing of like, well, we need people now. Yeah. And so you had a handful of Black nurses who who are allowed to come and, and serve at that point towards the end of the war. And then Black medical officers, and this is coming from history.delaware.org. Shout out to Delaware. <laughs> Virtually unknown today is the story of 104 African-American medical doctors who volunteered to serve during World War I. They were assigned to care for the wounded and sick in the all-Black units of the 92nd and 93rd Divisions. Most of these men graduated from the three Black colleges that specialized in the training of medical professions. So that's Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, Howard University College of Medicine in Washington, D.C., and Leonard Medical School at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. Wow. Yeah. So I just wanted to... Give a shout out to yeah. our medical staff, who truly were saving lives as well. Okay, now let's jump into notable individuals, like we did last time. Great. And these notes are coming from, once again, the Army website and history.com. And the first person I want to talk about, he's kind of like the, I would say, one of the most famous individuals from world war one he's a uh, black uh soldiers from world war one He pops up on everything so this is henry johnson
2: okay so
1: henry johnson enlisted in the united states army on june 5th 1917 and was assigned to company c 15th new york colored infantry regiment an all-black national guard unit that would later become the 369th infantry regiment While on night sentry duty on May 15, 1918, Johnson and fellow soldier Private Needham Roberts received a surprise attack by a German raiding party consisting of at least 12 soldiers. While under intense enemy fire and despite receiving significant wounds, Johnson mounted a brave retaliation resulting in several enemy casualties. When his fellow soldier was badly wounded, Johnson prevented him from being taken prisoner by German forces. Johnson exposed himself to grave danger by advancing from his position to engage an enemy soldier in hand-to-hand combat. Wielding only a knife and being seriously wounded, Johnson continued fighting, took his bolo knife, and st- <laughs> stabbed it through the enemy soldier's head. Holy shit! Right in the head! And the- that is... Mind you, I he's don't... like wounded. He's capital W wounded. And he is now basically wrestling with this German dude.
2: That takes wounded. so much with strength. With a knife. To stab a person in the fucking Very difficult. head
1: with a knife. We all know if you're killing somebody with a knife, it is usually an act of passion because it is so difficult. It's so hard. It's a lot of, it's a lot of effort. Damn, dude. Get it. I know. So displaying great courage, Johnson held back the enemy force until they retreated. The enemy's raid's failure to secure prisoners was due to the bravery and resistance of Johnson and his fellow comrade. The effect of their fierce fighting resulted in increased vigilance and confidence of the 369th Infantry Regiment. That's all from the army website. Wow. And for his battlefield valor... Johnson became one of the first Americans to be awarded the French, I'm going to say it wrong, and I'm so sorry, it's in (laughs) French, Croix de Guerre avec Pomme. It's a medal. Yeah. Which is France's highest award for valor. And Johnson was posthumously awarded the Purple Heart in 1996 and the Distinguished Service Cross in 2002. And this is a quote. Sergeant Henry Johnson is one of the five bravest American soldiers in the war. And that was written by Theodore Roosevelt in his book, Rank and File, True Stories of the Great War. Wow. So, yeah, you're talking about one of the first Americans to have this France honor. And it's a black man. Black soldier who literally stabbed somebody in the flipping head. In the head. That's insane. Wow. Yeah. So that's Henry Johnson. Then next up, love these guys. This is a group. And these are the Harlem Hellfighters. Oh, my God. Great name. What a name. Harlem Hellfighters. That's Um, amazing. Yeah. And this is coming from blackpass.org. Edward Mickelson, Jr., So the Harlem Hellfighters, first organized in 1916 as the 15th New York National Guard Infantry Regiment and manned by black enlisted soldiers with both black and white officers, the U.S. Army's 369th Infantry Regiment, popularly known as the Harlem Hellfighters, was the best known African-American unit of World War I. Federalized in 1917, it prepared for service in Europe and arrived in Brest, France, in December. Spending over six months in combat, perhaps the longest of any American unit in the war, the 369th, a.k.a. the Harlem Hellfighters, suffered approximately 1,500 casualties but received only 900 replacements. Unit histories claimed that they were the first unit to cross the Rhine into Germany. They performed well at the Chateau Thierry, maybe, mm-hmm. and Wood, earning the epithet Hellfighters from their enemies.
2: So their enemies oh, whoa, gave them shit. the name. That's, that's awesome.
1: That's like the most badass, because it's not like they're looking in the mirror and being like, you're a hell We're the hell fighter. fighters. It's literally the Germans being like, these are fucking hell fighters. These are fucking <laughs> insane people. They're like, oh my God. They're going to fuck
2: you, us up. <laughs> you don't want to go
1: up against this regiment. Bad news bears, guys.
2: That's Bad news insane. bears.
1: Ever Damn. been to hell? These are the fighters.
2: These are the fighters.
1: I know. Very badass. Okay, back to the hell fighters. African-American valor usually went unrecognized. However, well over a hundred members of the regiment received the American and or French medals, including the first two Americans, Corporal Henry Johnson and Private Needham Roberts, to be awarded the coveted French Croix de Guerre. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the last person I'm going to talk about is Corporal Freddie Stowers. And this is coming from the World War I Centennial Organization. So Corporal Freddie Stowers was an African-American war hero born in 1996 in Anderson, South Carolina. Despite the discrimination he faced there, he made the decision to serve our country on the segregated 371st Infantry Regiment. He was serving as squad leader in Company C of that regiment in the 93rd Infantry Division during the attack on Hill 188. The Champagne-Marne sector of France. So sorry to our French listeners. You know it's not my strong suit. There's so much. I mean, we just spent so much time you, in France.
2: You got and a lot of the French words in this episode.
1: I know, because we were just in France. Were just You're in France. France. You're What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What am I going to do? I'm doing my best. Buffet. What are you going to do? So the, the, hit, the attack on Hill 188 happened on September 28th. Enemy units fired down on Corporal Stowers' company only for minutes before holding up their arms in surrender, prompting American forces to cease fire and come out into the open. So, enemies are like, we surrender, the Americans mm. are like, dope, let's go, let's, let's hash this out. Yep. When Stowers' unshielded men were roughly 100 meters from the trench line, the enemy soldiers jumped back. Back into their trenches and unleashed bands of machine gun fire on them, causing over 50% of casualties. So probably, like, the most, like, like unheroic thing you could ever do, which is say that you're going to surrender and then, yeah. and then murder them. Yeah. And so enemy fire is raining down on these American soldiers. So despite these conditions, Stowers heroically crawled forward through the fire inciting extraordinary bravery in his quick-falling men. They fought fiercely to dismantle the machine-gun fire in the first trench, and then Stowers courageously pressed his men forward to the second trench, getting gravely wounded in the process. (gasps) He continued onward, urging his men to do the same, until he succumbed to that injury. His courage, strength, and devotion inspired his squad that they continued to push forward after his death, and so, despite their terrible odds, contributed greatly to the enemy casualties and the capture of Hill 188. Wow. So they still win. They went on. They went on and they, and they achieved their goal anyways. Right. Wow. After this massive, like, setback. Big setback. Yeah. And although no medals of honor were granted to black soldiers in World War I or World War II at first... Stowers were, was eventually granted the recognition due after a review of all the Distinguished Service Cross awards to Black soldiers in the 1980s and 1990s led him to being upgraded to a Medal of Honor. And I think I think Papa Bush ended up presenting it to his family, mm. um, like a, or maybe he presented the Purple Heart. Either way, like yeah,
2: eventually they recognized. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So those are some notable individuals. And now we're going to talk about the aftermath. One thing that I thought was in here that that I didn't put down, but I just want to say is still at this time, the army was the only primarily the only um, branch of the military that black people were allowed to serve in. So we don't see much in the Navy or Mm -hmm. the Air Force or anything like that because they still weren't allowed to. Really, to be in there. I know that there's a couple of places, but like as far as combat, it's primarily yep. the army. Um, I'm not sure if that changes in World War II. We'll find out. <laughs> but that I just wanted to say that because it's important. Yep. So let's talk about the aftermath. On November 11th, 1918, at 11 o'clock in the morning, the armistice between the Allies and Central Powers went into effect. Like all other American soldiers, the African-American troops reveled in the celebration and took justifiable pride in the great victory they helped achieve. It was not without great cost. The 92nd Division suffered 1,647 battle casualties, and the 93rd Division suffered 3,534 casualties. Expecting to come back home heroes, black soldiers received a rude awakening upon their return. Back home, many whites feared that African Americans would return demanding equality and would try to attain it by employing their military training. As troops returned, there was an increase of racial tension. During the summer and fall of 1919, anti-Black race riots erupted in 26 cities across America. The lynching of Blacks also increased from 58 in 1918 to 77 in 1919 and at least 10 of those victims were war veterans, and some were lynched while they were in uniform. Mm. Despite this treatment, African-American men continued to enlist in the military, including veterans of World War I that came home to such violence and ingratitude. They served their country in the brief period of peace after the World War, and many went on to fight in World War II. It was not until 1948 that President Harry S. Truman issued an executive order to desegregate the military, although it took the Korean War to fully integrate the army. And that is from Army History. And those are my notes. I Oof. mean, yeah, it's yeah. just... Because, I mean, this is, you know, we, we have, like, it just gets worse. Like, racial tensions in America just get worse from basically yeah. the World Wars onward, you know,
2: until the civil yeah. rights... And um, and their Yeah. And there are like, you know, it's that like one step forward, three or four steps back each time. Yep. Like there's like little things that happen or not little like it's it's big that you desegregate the branches. But like it feels like it's such a small, obvious step. Right. For all of the service and sacrifice going and back to the founding of the country.
1: Yeah, and it's so crazy to me that it wasn't until the Korean War that it was fully integrated.
2: The Korean
1: War wasn't that long ago. Korean War veterans are still living among us. Mm -hmm. It's wild.
2: Yep. Yeah. So that is WW1. My lord in heaven.
1: We're going to take a quick break for a little word from our sponsors.
2: Entry Denied is an eight-episode series from the Tempest Tossed podcast that examines the dramatic impact of Trump policies on migrants, refugees, immigrant communities, and the nation. Entry Denied provides a comprehensive discussion of the origins, content, and implications of Trump policies, told by leading journalists, migrants, and academics. Co-hosted by Alex Alenikoff, director of the Zolberg Institute at the New School, and Deb Amos, award-winning journalist for NPR. Entry Denied tells you the stories from the people who have lived through policy changes and those who have covered these changes on the ground. The Entry Denied series shows how Trump was able to accomplish much of what he promised during the presidential campaign, including a wall on the southwest border, reduction in refugee admissions, restrictions on asylum seekers, increasing ICE operations, and significant decreases in legal immigration. New episodes of Entry Denied are released weekly on Tuesdays. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, visit EntryDeniedPodcast.com. Leon number two, the squeakle. World War II, World War II, the sequel. So let's do what you did, which is start with a brief overview of World War II. So the causes of World War II. This is all coming from the CNN library. And I have to say this article is literally, I just cut and paste because it was so crystal clear and so full of facts and very Love simple. It. So from CNN library, causes of the war. Peace agreements after World War I, so the treaties that were worked out in Paris at the end of World War I, the armistice that Lizzie talked about, satisfied very few who were involved in the First World War. Quote, Germany, Austria, and the other countries on the losing side of the war were especially unhappy with the Paris Agreement, which required them to give up arms and make reparations. Germany agreed to sign the Treaty of Versailles only after the victorious countries threatened to invade if Germany did not sign it.
1: Don't make me come turn this car
2: around. They were like, we just did this. We will do this again. Sign the damn treaty. Do not make me turn this car (laughs) around. (laughs) We will come for you. Fun fact, Germany made the last payment on reparations in 2010. Okay, okay. Better late than never. So second cause of the war, economic issues... Quote, World War I was devastating to countries' economies. Although the European economy had stabilized by the 1920s, the Great Depression in the United States led to economic downfall in Europe. And communism and fascism gained strength in the wake of economic problems. Do we see a reoccurring theme in our own country? Yes. Yes, is the answer to that question. Sure do. <laughs> a third cause of the war tied into the economic issues is nationalism quote an extreme form of patriotism that grew in europe became even stronger after world war one especially for countries that were defeated so they like you know especially germany felt very like kind they of go personally att- yeah like and they felt personally attacked and like you know they're having to pay all these reparations it's hurting their economy it's kind of like, what are we sacrificing for? And they're very angry. And as, like, the citizens, like, I could understand that, right? Like, to a certain extent. Sure. Like, you're, as an in, like, individual citizen level. But then it grew into this, like, pride in, in Germany, which became very, like, root out and hunt out the quote-unquote other from your society. Because they're mm-hmm. the ones who are, you know, the scapegoat for everything that is wrong with your own life. Right. So fourth cause, according to CNN Library, fourth cause of World War II, dictatorships, political unrest, and unfavorable economic conditions led to the rise of dictatorships in countries like Germany, Italy, uh, Spain, (laughs) countries such (laughs) as, it doesn't say Spain at all, it says Japan.
1: You know what? And also Spain. (laughs) And also Spain. And also Spain. Um,
2: Dictatorships in countries such as Germany, Italy, Japan, and the Soviet Union. Cause Hitler was actually elected Chancellor and then Yeah. He like kicked out the government. He was like, actually, I'm Fuhrer now. You're done. And just like made himself a dictator. Yep. Last but not least, the failure of appeasement. So quote, Czechoslovakia had become an independent nation after World War I, but by 1938 was surrounded by German territory. Hitler wanted to annex the Sudetenland, an area in western Czechoslovakia where many Germans lived. British Prime Minister at the time, Neville Chamberlain, wanted to appease Hitler and agreed to his demands for the Neville. Sudetenland. I know. after Hitler, After Hitler promised... He promised. ...that he would not demand more territory. He promised. Fast forward a year and Hitler seized the rest of Czechoslovakia. Yes. So basically, like, you know, the whole of Europe is kind of like the frog that's been put into the cold water that's been turned on and is now boiling and you know i'm sure a lot of people are realizing what's happening but like the chef nobody just does doesn't anything. give a shit like yeah. nobody does anything
1: nobody does anything while he does these these shady yeah. things and they keep being no. like stop
2: it and he's like right.
1: okay and then he just keeps doing it
2: and then he keeps doing it and
1: they keep being like stop stop yeah. it
2: And And it's like, you guys. Taking, you know, asking for an inch and taking a mile and that kind of thing. Yeah. So some basic, basic, basic facts about World War II. There were the Axis powers, which I have also labeled the bad powers.
1: Bad powers. Bad
2: powers. (laughs) Bad powers. Bad powers. powers. And like, you know, there's so World War II is the Axis powers and the allied powers. Like Lizzie said before, there's some overlap, but not not entirely. So the access powers, the bad powers, are Germany, Japan, Italy. They were the initial ones, eventually Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania, and then two German-created states, Croatia and Slovakia, joined later on. The major players, Germany, of course, Adolf Hitler, Admiral Heideki Tojo from Japan, who was the prime minister, and then Benito Mussolini, who was the prime minister of Italy. Bad guys. Not cute. The allied powers, the good powers, were the United States- Eventually, Great Britain, China, and the Soviet Union. They were all initial countries fighting the Axis powers. Quote Between 1939 and 1944, at least 50 nations would eventually fight together. 13 more nations joined by 1945, including Australia, Belgium, Brazil. Uh, the British Commonwealth of Nations, Canada, India, New Zealand, South Africa, Czechoslovakia, Denmark, France, Greece, Netherlands, Norway, Poland, Philippines, Yugoslavia. So like a like whole it's the world. Slew this is of... a true
1: world war. Not yes. that like World yes. War One wasn't, but again, World War Two
2: It was everywhere. Yeah.
1: Really? They got a budget. Yep. And it was a it was a bigger operation.
2: Yep. So major players. United States, FDR, Franklin Delano, Roosevelt, president. Great Britain, Winston Churchill was the prime minister. China, Chiang Kai-shek was the general. Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin was the general. Some statistics, just to give you a sense of the size of the war. U.S. troop statistics, 16,112,566 U.S. troops served in the conflict. That's so many human beings. And that's just us.
1: Yeah, that's just U.S. That's just U.S., yeah.
2: 670,846 U.S. soldiers were wounded. In battle, 291,557 people died. In non-battle, 113,842,000 people died. So, lots of deaths. Yeah. So, in doing this research, I came across some really interesting things. Obviously, there's, like, a lot of crossover between, like, what the Nazis believed about the Jewish people and other people that they imprisoned and murdered, like the gypsies and and political prisoners. But there's a lot right. of there's a lot of overlap between Nazism and racism. Mm-hmm. And so this is all coming from a few sources from Smithsonian Magazine. Hi, love the History Teaching Institute at Ohio, the Ohio, the State Ohio City. <laughs> And an article that I found in PBS, which was originally posted in The Root, that's written by Henry Louis Gates Jr. And this is going to talk a little bit about, I didn't realize that it was so, that there was such a link between the two isms, Nazism and racism, like so explicit a link, and that the German leaders had any idea what Jim Crow laws were. Like, I, I actually didn't realize that. And so this was an interesting topic to to research. So during World War II, Jim Crow laws were prominent throughout the United States and the Nazis of the Third Reich were not only aware of the existence of those laws, but embraced their usage by modeling some of their own laws after Jim Crow laws. Super incredible. This is from the Chicago Defender. They noted that, quote, the practice of Jim Crowism has already been adopted by the Nazis. It was a quote from the official newspaper so this the following is a quote from the official newspaper of the SS the the German um murdering team the Nazi paramilitary organizations and the origins of the railway ban so they said this is the SS they said, in the freest country in the world, meaning U.S. Dot, where even the president rages against racial discrimination, no citizen of dark color is permitted to travel next to a white person, even if the white person is employed as a sewer digger and the Negro is a world boxing champion or otherwise national hero. This example shows us all how we have to solve the problem of traveling foreign Jews.
1: <laughs> God. God. It's so sickening. It's so sickening because it's like, it's like, like, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's, yeah. of course they make that connection. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you it's know, obvious. It's, ugh, I just, I hate, I hate that we were inspiring. Yeah. To them for yeah. this, for this cause. And, and we were. And that's just, like, the, the truth of it.
2: Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So some black soldiers were less than enthusiastic about fighting in a war on behalf of a country that didn't give them full rights. Really? Can we blame them? Honestly. So there was, I had no idea that this campaign existed. And honestly, like, it's kind of amazing. So this is all coming from um, the Ohio State University. There's one quote I think in here from somebody else. But most of this is from Ohio State. So the sentiment of, like, we don't want to fight in a war. Like to uphold the 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 idealistic beliefs of a country that doesn't really abide by those idealistic right. beliefs. If there were hypocrites, um, yeah. That, so it led to this campaign called the Double V campaign. Have you heard okay. of this? No. So the slogan "Double V" refers to victory abroad over Nazism and victory at home over racism and inequality. Yeah, okay, love, love
1: yeah. two birds, one stone. Let's yeah. go.
2: Yeah. So the slogan double V enabled African American leaders to build coalitions and garner public support for an ongoing civil rights campaign. So they're like, listen to us. Mm-hmm. This is you, you're you going to war to defend a group of people and and liberate a group of people who are being oppressed. And like, Yes, great. Yes. Let's do that. But Let's also, do like, you're oppressing us. Do you not see how? Let's look inward. This is a mirror situation here. They didn't. Yep. So, quote, Double V was, however, more than a slogan. It was an ideology that invoked the necessity of a vigil- vigilant fight for democracy. Organizations and individuals across the political and programmatic spectrum found common ground under the ideological umbrella of the Double V. The Double V slogan was coined officially by Robert Vann's Pittsburgh Courier in 1942, but the campaign for Double V emerged in part from the rising wind of Black internationalism in the late 1930s. So, quote, as Benito Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia in 1935 and Adolf Hitler's snubbing of Black athletes in the 1936 Olympics. African-American leaders connected the African-American struggle for justice at home to the battle against fascism overseas. hmm So by 1941, while the United States contemplated entry into the Second World War... I just, just contemplated about it. being the operative just word. thinking about it. So while the Double V campaign was unable to achieve its goals during the war... Segregation in the armed forces remained official policy until, as Lizzie said, President Truman changed that whole thing with an executive order in 1948. It galvanized black people and liberal whites around a mission whose power derived from the elegance of its simplicity. So that quote is from Henry Louis Gates Jr. Love. So, yeah. So, like, obviously their double V campaign didn't work as well as they wanted it to. Right. But – they were trying, and it actually is, is quite a simple argument that they were making, but Americans were not hearing it. We weren't it was, hearing it. We were preoccupied, and it was falling on deaf ears. Yes. So uh, more than 2.5 million Amer- African Americans registered for the draft when World War II began. One million served. Jeez. Yep. So here's just a bit of an overview of the Black soldiers... Experience. So this is coming from 13.org, um, our own little station in New York City.
1: Love.
2: Quote Most black soldiers who enlisted in the armed services during World War II knew that they would serve in segregated units. The Marines and the Army Air Corps, which was the predecessor to the Air Force, refused to accept blacks until later in the war. The
0: mm-hmm. Navy
2: accepted them only as messmen, messmen being those who were enlisted in the Navy but only served food and cleared tables in the soldiers' and officers' quarters. Yep. Most men in the army were used in noncom, combatant military jobs, but some did get a chance to serve on the front lines. So as Lizzie said, we have not come very far. <laughs> we have
1: not come far. It makes no, like, especially after World War I. Yeah. It makes no sense why this still, conti- why there's still such a resistance to having, so- like, them serve as combat soldiers. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. they've what what more do you need?
2: Yeah. Like, like what, what what more proof do you need? Thousands that I, yeah. of
1: soldiers died for your country,
2: not not just 10 years ago. Right. And it's what just more so much work. It's just so much work like you're creating separate infantry, separate like you're doing separate trainings, like you're making it so much more work to keep things separate than if you were just like All right. All 1,000 of you. Let's just go. There's some black and white people together. Great. Pony it up. Let's go. Uh, Like, it's just so, it's so useless. Yeah. (laughs) So to give you a sense of what it was like for some black soldiers serving in World War II, I'm just going to read some quotes from them that I have found super interesting because it's like, a lot of it, some of them are like their perspectives after the war looking back and what they were realizing as they were serving. And and some of it is, like, the same stuff that you talked about when they returned home yeah. about the kind of resistance and oppression that they experienced. So, quote, Roscoe Pickett recalled that at, by serving in the Army, he learned an important fact about himself. He said, quote, I knew then that I wasn't going to go back on the farm. I knew that I was going to go to college somewhere. That's the thing that changed my life. I knew that a black man could do things other than mess around playing with an ox, messing around cutting cross ties. That's the thing that changed me. He's literally saying service in the Army changed my life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it
2: gave me, it made me realize that, like, I am capable of way more than I am told that I am am capable of. Right, right. So that was Roscoe Pickett. So for James Jones, he served in the 761st Tank Battalion and saw action in Europe. And for him, it was about the French who made a profound difference in his life. So he said, quote, The French had a certain kind of openness and warmth that they exhibited towards minorities that was just unexplainable. You wouldn't know that you were black when you were in their company. Relationships between black and white soldiers were mixed. Some white outfits were openly hostile towards blacks. uh, He's talking about the U.S. Right. The hostility would sometimes break into violence, and white soldiers would attack, beat, and even kill blacks. Some black and white soldiers formed friendships when serving together, especially men who fought together on the front lines. But when they returned home, the color line once again reappeared. Close quote. Mm. Yeah. And then, so that's all coming from 13.org, and I'll just say one more a little bit about one other soldier. His name is Henry Murphy. So... "quote when blacks came home after the war whites were prepared to quote put them back in their place" Henry mm-hmm. Murphy said that when he returned to the states this one I mean it all makes me really sad but this is like I don't yeah. know you like you have family members in the military and I like my I have family members who have served and so it just feels very this one makes me very uh sad. Henry Murphy said that when he returned to the States and called his father in Mississippi, his father warned him not to come home with his uniform on.
1: Mm.
2: Quote, he said that the police was beating black soldiers and searching them. If they had a picture of a white woman in his wallet, they'd kill him. Close quote. Murphy returned home dressed as a sharecropper in overalls and a jumper. Like, yeah. He wouldn't – he didn't feel comfortable wearing his uniform. Yeah. The same, it made like, them a target. It made them a target where, like, you know, the white soldiers who came home from World War II – now, it's not true of all white soldiers that, like, the I – people who came home from Vietnam did not come home to this. This So, like, sure. this is very particular to, like, soldiers coming home from World War II. But, you know, those soldiers came home – the ones who did come home were celebrated. Heroes. 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 Yeah. And and this man is saying, like, I, I couldn't wear my – the thing that he was probably very proud of, his service to, his, to the country, to his country, he can't wear those symbols. Right. He can't wear, wear the killing. thing that – yeah. Uh, so that just gives you a little bit of, of detail about yeah. what was going on. So some notable soldiers. I'm going to talk about one group, a very famous group. That you've all probably heard of. And then I'm going to talk about one soldier. Great. So I'm going to talk about the Tuskegee Airmen.
1: Love.
2: Yeah. So this is coming from TuskegeeAirmen.org and History.com. So, quote, in spite of... Ad- Adversity and limited opportunities, African Americans have played a significant role in US military history. They were denied military leadership roles and skill training because many believed they lacked qualifications for combat duty. And it's like, well, okay, but if you never teach them, how will they ever have the qualifications?
1: Right. How does anybody get qualifications, qualifications. they go into
2: training? Right. Before 1940, African-Americans were barred from flying for the U.S. military. Civil rights organizations and the black press exerted pressure that resulted in the formation of an all-African-American pursuit squadron based in Tuskegee, Alabama in 1941. I love it. Yep. And they became known as the Tuskegee Airmen. Great. Tuskegee Airmen refers to all who were involved in the so-called Tuskegee Experience, the Army Air Corps program to train African-Americans to fly and maintain combat aircraft. The airmen included pilots, navigators, bombardiers, maintenance and support staff, instructors, and all the personnel who kept the planes and pilots in the air. Bless. So they start they train them like how to do all of this stuff. Okay, great. So there's, like, a lot of history. It's, I mean, we could do, like, a whole episode on the Tuskegee Airmen. There's a lot of history about, like, how they trained a certain group and then that group went on to do something and they fought in various skirmishes and then they got more trained. You know, like, it's really, like, a a story of they kept moving up and elevating because they Mm -hmm. were proving their worth. So by the time the 332nd flew its last combat mission at the end of the war on April 26, 1945, Two weeks before the German surrender, the Tuskegee Airmen had flown more than 15,000 individual sorties, like missions, over the two years in combat. 15,000 That's in two years. literally so It's so, so, many. It's it's so al- many. They're always in the air. It's, they're always, they're never on the ground. They've never, they're, they literally were in no, flight for two years. They, they sleep in the air. Yep. They had destroyed or damaged 36 German planes in the air. and two hundred. Yeah. Take in the down. fucking air. In the air. In the air. And 237 on the ground. Yep. As well as nearly a 1,000 rail cars and transport vehicles and a German destroyer. Yeah, take it down. Take, take it, it, it down. down. Take it down. And all 66 Tuskegee-trained aviators were killed in action during World War II, while another 32 were captured as POWs after being shot down. Mm. So that part was from History.com. On November 6, 1998, President Clinton approved Public Law 105-355, which established the Tuskegee Airmen National Historic Site at Motton Field in Tuskegee, Alabama, to commemorate and interpret the heroic actions of the Tuskegee Airmen during World War II. The new site contains a museum and interpretive programs at the historic complex on the field, as well as a national center based on a public-private partnership. So that's from the TuskegeeAirmen.org. So they, like were a whole unit unto themselves that did a lot of damage during the yeah. war. Got and it. yeah, and you know, it took some time, but they were finally honored. Honored in 1998. Yep. Okay. Last thing I'm going to talk about is, or last person, is John R. Fox. And this is all coming from, the Congressional Medal of Honor Society. So that gives you a hint of where we're going with this. We love it. Love it. So John R. Fox was a lieutenant in the Cannon Company in the 366th Infantry Regiment, 92nd uh, Infantry Division. He received a Medal of Honor for extraordinary, quote, this is all uh, in his, on the citation. So he received a Medal of Honor for extraordinary heroism against an armed enemy in the vicinity of Somocolonia, Italy on the 26th of December, 1944. So, quote, During the preceding few weeks, Lieutenant Fox served with the 598th Field Artillery Battalion as a forward observer. On Christmas night, enemy soldiers gradually infiltrated the sound of Soma Colonia in civilian clothes. And by early morning, the town was largely in hostile hands, commencing with a heavy barrage of en- enemy artillery at 0400 hours. That's 4 o'clock in the morning. Very and early. Just very, very early in the morning. On December 26, 1944, an organized attack by uniformed German units began. Greatly outnumbered, most of the United States infantry forces were forced to withdraw from the town. But Lieutenant Fox and some other members of his observer party voluntarily remained on the second floor of a house to direct defensive artillery fire. So they're like, we'll stay and, like, try and and head them off and, like, mm. give people time for other things to happen elsewhere. Like, we'll take the hit here and, and slow them down. At 8 o'clock, 0800 hours, Lieutenant Fox reported that the Germans were in the streets and attacking in strength. He then called for defensive artillery fire to slow the enemy advance. As the Germans continued to press the attack towards the area that Lieutenant Fox occupied, he adjusted the artillery fire closer to his position. So he's, like, trying to draw them to him. To him. Yep. Finally, he was warned that the next adjustment would bring the deadly artillery right on top of his position. After acknowledging the danger, Lieutenant Fox insisted that the last adjustment be fired as this was the only way to defeat the attacking soldiers. Later, when a counterattack retook the position from the Germans, Lieutenant Fox's body was found with the bodies of approximately 100 German soldiers. Wow. Lieutenant Fox's gallant and courageous actions at the supreme sacrifice of his own life contributed greatly to delaying the enemy advance until other infantry and artillery units could reorganize to repel the attack. So he literally, like, I'm, like, going to cry. He, like, brought them to, like, he sacrificed himself. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, His extraordinary, valorous actions were in keeping with the most cherished traditions of military service and reflect the utmost credit on him, his unit, in the United States Army. Again, that's all coming from the Congressional Medal of Honor service. So they're, like... Yeah, this man was a hero. Like this he was is a this fucking is hero, the best of the best. Yeah, so that's that's his story. I mean,
1: mm.
2: yeah, Lieutenant yeah. John R. Fox.
1: Yeah, what a, what a I feel like not. I mean, just an inspiring one to end on.
2: Yeah, yeah, a true, a true hero. So that's that's World War Two.
1: That's W Two. Yeah, I mean, you know, I just. Get fed up with you. S. Dot. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just. I'm so glad that we did this little two-part series, sort of mm-hmm. honoring our our veterans who literally weren't really even acknowledged or recognized until 20 years ago for their service. Mm-hmm. But if you are a veteran, we salute you and we thank you for your service. Want to say a happy post Fourth of July again? Um, to I don't know. It's, it feels weird to say Happy Fourth of July because this country is in shambles. But yeah, I like it the also... sentiment of yes of celebrating the ni- the formation of this country. Yes, while acknowledging the flaws within it.
2: Yes, I I do think that you can acknowledge the good. Just you know, like I'm, I, I don't think that just because there is bad and there is a lot of bad that you necessarily have to throw out the good, right? You know, we will not, so we I, I will think, not throw
1: out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, we won't I think do we, it.
2: Nope. I think we acknowledge the other, you know, we acknowledge the wrongs and try to to address them and and if you can make them right, make them right somehow. But you know, acknowledge the good and and give voice to the good that has been left. Uh, unvoiced and abandoned for so long. Yep. Yeah. So with that,
1: we will just say that we love you so, so much. And if you like what you heard, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Get Civical. You can rate us. You can review us. You can subscribe to us. We love you so, so much. And we will see you next Wednesday. Goodbye.